listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Um, with all that being said, as, as we prepare to get into the, the passage that Jordan read for us this morning, just want to say that preparing for this week's sermon has been a, a really humbling challenge for me uh, because today's passage deals with the topic of, of the coming day of judgment and, and the wrath of God, uh, which the Bible talks about regularly. It, it describes this day as terrifying and violent and deeply troubling, um, and, and it's, it's the climactic close of all of history. Um, and, and this topic marks the climactic close, really, to the letter to the Thessalonians. I mean, from here, this is really the height of what Paul is building up to in this letter that we've been preaching through over the last month or so. Uh, in the previous passage, which we discussed last week, Paul talked about this same day, the day in which Christ will return, but he encouraged us regarding Christ's return. He spoke to Christians as this day that is promised. It's going to involve celebration and joy, reunion with our, our, our brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers who have died in the faith, and, and it rooted us in this hope in light of the reality of physical death, this hope that we will have eternal life with God in Christ if we are those who belong to him. Uh, but this week, we kind of get to the other side of the same coin, that the, the coming day of the Lord in which Christ will return will be a joyful, momentous occasion for those who are in Christ. But for those who are outside of Christ, for those who have rejected Christ, it will be a terrifying day. And Paul begins the passage by saying, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so Paul is confident that the Thessalonian Christians already know about this doctrine and this future reality. And they know about it largely because they're Jewish Christians. And so they have been steeped in an understanding of the day of the Lord. They don't need to be taught about it, and so Paul is going to pastor them regarding it. And one of the things I considered this week is that if Paul were writing this letter to Sojourn Montrose, I don't think he would have begun that section that way. I don't think he would have said, you have no need for me to write to you about this. I think there's great need for us to reckon with these realities, to learn about this, to live in light of the coming of the day of the Lord. And so before we jump into the text, would you join me in praying that God would humble us, that he would teach us, that he would mold us uh, according to his word? I'm going to begin by praying um, from some verses from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Father, would you allow us to believe the things that your psalmist wrote, that your word is good, that it is sweet 
to our taste, that it is more to be desired, that your truth is more to be desired even than gold? Would we trust that the things that you reveal to us in your scriptures, the things that you promise about what you are going to do, that they are good things because you are a good God? Would you humble us in light of that reality? Would you teach us and would you draw us to yourself? For those in the room who would call themselves Christians, would you shape us according to your word? And for those in the room this morning who who have yet to trust in you, would you show them your grace? Would you show them your beauty? Would you show your, your power and your might that they might turn to you? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I, many of you know this, but I used to work in, in a restaurant, and on, on the slow days, um, the expectation was that, that the staff would get things done that we didn't have time to do during busy shifts, right? So we would take out everything from the low boy refrigerators and, and clean it out. We would sanitize the, the cash register, like all sorts of things. We'd disassemble the coffee grinder and, and clean it, things that you would never have time to do when you have a line out the door, people waiting to, to, to be served, when you have the phone ringing off the hook. There's no time for these things, but but there was an expectation that you would work when things are slow. And still, as you might expect, there was a temptation toward not doing those things, right? There was, there was a temptation to just sit and talk with your coworkers, maybe chat with a regular, maybe to go stand in the walk-in refrigerator and just take a few minutes for yourself just to cool off. Um, this was the temptation um, because the day before had been exhausting. You'd been up late, you'd worked hard, and now you have a chance to relax. But sometimes at about 3 p.m., which if, you've, if you're familiar with restaurants, you know 3 p.m. is like the slowest of the slow. 3 p.m. on a slow day, the owner of the restaurant would show up. And you can imagine how it went for people that he found being lazy while he was paying them to work and take care of his restaurant. So we would work even when it didn't feel urgent. And some did this out of positive motivation, right? Sometimes you work during a a slow shift out of the positive motivation of of wanting to be a good employee, wanting to do your job well, the sense of satisfaction for accomplishing these tasks that that you didn't usually have time to do, taking pride in what you've done, the, the desire to go home exhausted even when the work didn't need to be as exhausting. But sometimes we did this out of a negative motivation, of fear regarding an unexpected visit from our boss, right? In which being found asleep at the wheel would result in docked hours, being fired, or at the very minimum, some sort of verbal humiliation in front of our peers, right? And so we were motivated both positively and negatively to do our job. I wanted to please my boss. I wanted to be a good employee. I wanted to feel the sense of accomplishment for having done a good job, but I also wanted to not get yelled at. I wanted to keep my job. And in the New Testament, both Jesus and the apostles often refer to this coming of the day of the Lord in similar sorts of analogies to this, like a master returning from a trip to find his servants, either laboring faithfully in his estate and waiting for his arrival or being found lazy and selfish and maybe dishonest. 
And this passage for today in 1 Thessalonians is in that sort of vein. Paul tells the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And this is doubly bad language, right? Thieves come to take and destroy. They come unexpectedly. They use violence to, to, to gain their loot. And night is a time of darkness, a time for sleeping, a time of vulnerability, a time when all sorts of evil takes place. And in the Bible, night and day are also these symbolic opposites which relate to that which is bad and that which is good. And so thief in the night is bad, bad in Bible language. Paul is talking about the great and terrible day of the Lord, as the prophet Joel calls it. And I say that because I want to show you a sampling of the ways that the day of the Lord is discussed throughout the Bible, and especially in the Old Covenant prophets, because this is how the Thessalonians would have been thinking about the day of the Lord at the moment Paul mentioned it, because they were largely Jewish Christians. They had been taught from the Jewish scriptures. They understood the Bible's understanding about the day of the Lord in ways that many of us just don't. We don't have the same sort of context that they do, but they knew that Isaiah 13 describes the day of the Lord as a day of destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah says it is cruel with wrath and fierce anger. Jeremiah 46 calls it a day of vengeance for God to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. Ezekiel 30 calls it a day of clouds, a time for doom for the nations. Joel 2 says it's a day of thick darkness and gloom, great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Zephaniah chapter 1 verses 15 through 18 say that it's a day, a day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry. Thus says the Lord, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So the day of the Lord is serious. God is going to come. Christ is going to return to the earth and all who have not turned to him, submitted to his kingship, trusted in his salvation, looked to his death on their behalf as their only hope, put faith in his gospel. All who have not done these things will be destroyed by the wrath of God so that the fullness of creation will be purged of iniquity, cleansed of sin, ruined of death, and justice will be done for all time, for eternity past, and the heavens and the earth will be made fully new and fully glorious in that day. So the day of the Lord is a day of reckoning. That's why the scriptures say it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the Lord. And I wonder, Christian in the room, do you often consider that this day of wrath will come? I would imagine most of you don't. Um, we live in an age where we've developed a, a strong distaste for, for really any sort of preaching or discourse that, that has to do with this. Because the the cultural philosophy that we are immersed in is that people ought to do things based on positive motivation always and negative motivation never, right? Fear 
is a bad motivator. This is a cultural conviction that we have, that fear is a bad motivator, that people should want to turn to Christ for, for good reasons, because they see him as lovely, because they recognize his grace and the blessings of his forgiveness. They should turn to him because he is loving toward them. He offers them blessing, belonging in his family. He desires to transform them and give them joy. People should want to be Christians out of love for God, not out of fearful compulsion. And and hear me, I agree with that. I agree with that. This is why we should turn to God. We should turn to God because he's altogether good. But, But the thing that God understands in the way that he's revealed himself through the word is that people actually need both positive and negative motivations in order to sustain and encourage faithfulness, which leads to immeasurable joy. Remember, the letter to the first Thessalon- to first, of First Thessalonians was written to Christians. And it recognizes that some will be particularly motivated by the realities of God's coming judge- judgment and justice. And in fact, some we'll see the radical justice of God, the wrath of God toward evil and sin, his hatred for injustice, his hatred for oppression, his hatred for those who would abandon him, and they would see the goodness, beauty, and power of God in that, that it would compel them to worship such a powerful and good and holy God. That the grace of God is revealed strongly in light of his wrath, that he would spare his people from that fate, though though they deserve it, though they're no better than their neighbors. If I asked all the married people in the room this morning why it is that they don't cheat on their spouse, the most common answers I would get are positive motivation answers, right? I, I don't cheat on my spouse because I love my wife. I'm attracted to my wife. She's the only one for me. I've made promises to my wife. I enjoy my life with my wife. I love my family. I desire to be faithful. It brings me great pleasure and joy to remain steadfast to my vows. But if, if questions kept being answered, uh, eventually negative motivations would come out. Right? Like, if I'm being honest, one of the reasons I would lose my job, right? Y'all wouldn't have me. I would lose a lot of friends and family. I would maybe become a stranger to my son. It would radically affect my life in all sorts of ways that would bring ruin and horror and disgust into my life. And and these are real motivations, right? So faithfulness is encouraged by positive motivations of a sustained and healthy marriage and negative motivations of not ruining one's life, right? Right? And both lead to an outcome that is desirable. Both lead to an outcome that is desirable. And so when the Bible warns of the seriousness of God's hatred for sin, the promise that he will visit his wrath upon those who do not worship him and and trust in false gods and and false senses of salvation, that, that God's desire isn't simply for people to be so afraid that they fall in line. That's not the point of the scriptures. But he does want to properly warn them about what will happen if they don't turn to him. He he does want to warn them about the mess they've made of their lives and their deep need for him and the consequences of not trusting in his salvation. 
I don't warn my son not to touch a hot stove because the hot stove is evil or because I want him to be afraid. But out of love, I warn him of the consequence. So so there's plenty in the scriptures, including the passage that we discussed last week, that point to all the positive motivations to trust in Christ. Right? Jesus shows love toward outsiders. He's a desirable king. Jesus forgives sinful people. He's a gracious savior. He heals the sick. He's a powerful friend. He offers the gift of carrying our burdens, restoring our brokenness, making us whole, inviting us into union with God forever where we get to experience heavenly blessings, heavenly realities for eternity. And so all of these things are good. You should come to Jesus because he is lovely. Worship him because he's altogether good. Trust in him because he's trustworthy. Love him because he has first loved you. But know that if you don't, you will one day reckon with him when the time for turning toward him has passed. You will answer for your deeds. You will be judged according to your works. And I'm here to tell you, none of us want that. You will be part of what the prophets say, sates the appetite of his heavenly sword of victory, justice, and wrath. And so let's keep reading the passage. It says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So Paul here is referring to ideas of the day, especially situated within the Roman Empire, the the idea of the Pax Romana. Right, Rome promised to establish a peaceful empire throughout the known world in which prosperity could exist, freedom from violence and oppression could exist. And so Paul is saying that people are going to be convinced by these sorts of things. They're going to buy into the Pax Romana and things like it that follow. This idea that they can achieve the heavenly attributes that only God can truly provide, i.e., peace and security. They'll trust in earthly things for those things. And so when Christ returns to establish peace and security for eternity, it will be a great surprise for them such that it's like a thief coming in the night. He goes on, he says, but you, referring to Christians, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. So, so this is the big reveal of the passage. right? He's addressing Christians and he tells them that even though he has said that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night, it won't be like a thief in the night for them. Because they aren't of the night. They aren't sleepers. So Christian brothers and sisters, by belonging to Christ, who John calls the light of the world, who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, as Paul says elsewhere, we have become children of light. And so Paul made this transition to talking about the seriousness of the day of the Lord right after last week's passage where he was talking about the joyful hope of the day of the Lord. And now he resituates Christians in that joy, in that hope. No no less serious, but no need to fear. But in this, he also levies the imperative of the passage, the call of the passage. And he does so through this form of brotherly and mutual invitation. He says, let us not sleep. Let us keep awake and be sober. 
And so if you're a Christian in the room, this day is coming. Paul is saying, be ready for it. Don't get caught up in the cares of the world. Don't be deceived by the promises of peace and security that governments, finances, careers, relationships, experiences, and pleasures can provide you. Your security, Christian brother and sister, is that Christ has died for you so that you might live. That's your security. There is none other. Your peace is that God has made you who were formerly an enemy of his, who formerly walked in in sin, disobedience, and rebellion to the kingdom of God, that through the work of Jesus, through the faithfulness of the Son, has invited you to be his friend forever. That's your peace. Peace with God. So don't forget these things. Don't forget these things. Stay awake. Be sober to these realities. Paul is saying, put your hand to the plow of the garden of God, even when it feels like a slow shift after a really busy day. Keep your eye on the prize that Paul calls the upward call of God in Christ, that that God has called us to pursue faithfulness in his kingdom, that he's called us to to brotherly love and mutuality, to generosity and hospitality and all of these things. And Paul is saying, don't be distracted by other things that promise you heavenly things because only God provides them. Those who sleep in this passage, those who are drunk in this passage, refers to those who are distracted, those who are deceived, those who are dismissive about the things of God, about the truth of Christ, about the promise of God's judgment, those who think peace and security can be purchased or procured through money, power, politicking, or pleasure. Don't let the Lord find you sleeping upon his return. The warning of this text is a warning against abandoning the truth of the gospel, the call of Christ on your life. Jesus tells us in the parable of the sower, which we mentioned a few weeks ago, that that there are those who will hear the word and will receive it with gladness. But then when things get hard in the Christian life, the, the cares of this world will consume them and choke out the faith so that they would abandon him. Paul is warning us not to be those kinds of seeds in this passage. When things get hard, when when suffering comes, which it will, when opposition arises, which it is promised, when the world around you preaches other gospels that are less glorious than Christ, but seemingly a lot more tangible, a lot more attainable, don't turn from Christ in those days. I love how this passage concludes, Paul says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. That's good news, church. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, so whether we are alive when he returns or whether we are in our graves when he returns, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. So Paul calls us to sobriety. For Paul, sobriety is a mental 
emotional and spiritual steadfastness that's rooted in the understanding of ultimate reality as revealed through God and Christ, the Word made flesh. So, so th- this is a, a concept that we see portrayed in, in, in entertainment and movies and books and all things, like in, in the Matrix, right? When a character becomes aware of what's actually going on around him, of the ultimate realities that surround him, the aha moment. So, so Paul is saying the gospel of Christ that you've believed, this mystery that's been hidden for ages, but it's now been revealed to you through the Son. That's the moment where you've been awoken to the truth about God, where you've been made sober to the realities around you. And he's saying, remain that way. But sobriety isn't a work to accomplish. Not in the gospel sense, right? It is a gift to live into. It's a gift to live into because Paul calls Christians those who already have put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so if you are a Christian in the room, you've already been made sober to the realities of God and Christ. You've been made sober and awake to the truth of God's beauty, his love, his forgiveness, his unending grace, his steadfastness and faithfulness from generation to generation. And so don't go to sleep. You are already awake by the power of the resurrection. So don't go to sleep. If you're beginning to doze here and there, sit up straight and remember that Christ is Lord, that he is good, that he is ordaining things to work out for your good, for the good of his people, that he desires for you to experience the fullness of his love, the fullness of his grace, that all of your sins are washed away in the blood of Christ, that there's nothing else to be done that you might be saved. Remember these things, that he's conquered death so that you might be awake and alive to God's love for you. God's plan for you, the fundamental truth that you are his. He has given you faith to trust in him, which leads itself to wisdom to understand him, knowledge to know him. You are already marked by his love, Christian brother and sister. You wear it, Paul says, as armor about you. This breastplate of faith and of love, which is beautiful. It's this idea that that the waters of your baptism have become through faith and the gift of the Spirit a warrior's breastplate. That your head, the director of your actions and thoughts, the, the, the ruler of your body is now adorned with hope rather than fear. Hope that in the great and awesome day of the Lord, you will be saved from God's wrath according to God's grace. Because here's the thing about grace, church, is that It is a beautiful and wonderful gift to experience the fullness of God's blessings of grace, forgiveness, and life. But grace is not beautiful in spite of God's wrath, but precisely because of God's wrath. Grace is more beautiful in light of the reality of what we have been spared from, the the fate that we have been drawn out of. So you, you will not be slain in the day of the Lord, but you will be adorned with the armor of a soldier in the army of Christ. You will be part of establishing justice and righteousness over the face of the earth in that day, and you are part of it in this day now when you point people toward the cross. When you point them toward the wrath of God being satisfied through the death of God's Son on behalf of a sinful people that that all who believe in Him shall not perish in this day or the next, but shall have eternal life with Him forever. 
See, church, the thing about the day of the Lord is that it has already come for those who are in Christ because all of the things that we read in the prophets about how great and terrible the day of the Lord is, the the violence of God's wrath, God's deep hatred towards sin, if you have trusted in Christ, all of those things happened to Jesus at Calvary. The sword of God's wrath was sated upon the Son of God so that it won't on you. God's hatred for sin was poured out upon the Son of God so that you can be redeemed, so that you can be forgiven, so that those things will never be true of you, that God's wrath will visit you, that God's hatred for your sin, for your rebellion, though you deserve it a thousand times over more than Christ, he has absorbed it on your behalf. The day of the Lord has come and resurrection has followed. One thing that you may have noticed in the Bible regarding the day of the Lord, this, this coming of Christ, is that there's always this sense of imminence about it. And this has troubled me throughout the years, this idea that, that was like Paul just wrong, right? Because he seemed to think that Jesus was just going to come next week, right? Like it was going to happen really soon. And here we are over 2,000 years later, he hasn't come. And so was Paul just wrong about this? And the answer is no. He wasn't. What One, Paul didn't know when the day of the Lord would come. Christ himself said he didn't know when he was alive. He said that, that the Father has even hidden this from me. And so Paul didn't know. But there is a sense in the Scriptures that all generations of those who are in Christ should be ready for that day, that we're not going to know, and so we should be ready for it. And so there's an intentional way in which God has authored the Scriptures such that we would read it in every generation, and if Christ doesn't return in ours, in our children's generation, and they will live with this eager expectation that maybe he will return tomorrow. Maybe we'll walk outside and and he'll be descending on a cloud of glory. And the reason for this is because God wants us to understand that we are called to live and love in obedience and faithfulness in a way befitting those whose master might show up at any morning, at any moment. That we wouldn't be asleep on the job. That we wouldn't lose sight of what is actually at stake. The the salvation of God as revealed in scriptures is worked out in love and in joy and in confidence, but also in fear and in trembling. The kindness of the Lord, Paul says, leads us to repentance, but the righteous fear of the Lord often keeps us in obedience. Paul has evoked this idea of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and then he tells the Christians in Thessalonica He doesn't tell them to cower. He doesn't tell them to mourn. He doesn't tell them to worry. He doesn't even tell them to be afraid. He tells them to encourage one another in light of this and build one another up in light of this. And so, Sojourn Montres, may I encourage you this morning. Christ is coming. He's coming. No matter what suffering you're walking through, no matter what despair you're experiencing, no matter the mourning you've been participating in, no matter the hardship you endure, no matter what the next few decades of your life might look like, Christ is coming for you. He is returning for you. He is going to make all things new. And so let him find us serving faithfully in his household. 
caring for one another day after day, bearing each other's burdens, proclaiming good news to our neighbors, forsaking all the cares of the world, never clinging to them as if they can save us, satisfy us, or satiate us. Let, let, us, let him find us focused upon his grace, his victory, and his beauty, and not the fleeting pleasures of sin. Let him find us singing hymns of praise, praying for his kingdom to come, and forgiving one another readily. I mean, can you just imagine sitting in your room, praying that Christ's kingdom would come, and then he starts to descend? Let him find us being generous with our homes, with our money, with our gifts. Let him find us serving the poor, feeding the hungry, caring for widows and orphans. Let him find us awake and sober and full of the light of God, which will come down in that day to illuminate everything and everyone forever. Nothing will be hidden in that day. So whether he returns in our days or in the days of our offspring, the promise is that those who trust in him will live with him because he has died for us. So let him find us faithful. Not because our faithfulness earns us freedom from wrath in that day, but because faithfulness is the only appropriate response to this sort of grace. Let him find us faithful, whether in his coming or in our dying breaths. And now as we prepare to pray, in a moment we're going to approach the slain body and the shed blood of Jesus. Let us do so with sobriety, in the full light of the day. And if you're not a Christian in the room, Hear my honest plea. Would you trust in him? Would you trust in him? If you want to know more about what it looks like to follow Christ, to trust in him, I'd love to talk to you after the gathering. I know we have a lot of people here who would. um, But we say this a lot uh, in in the church. We say that our only hope in life and in death is that we are not our own, but that we belong wholly to Jesus Christ and and, and so he is our only hope in life and death. And whether you know it or believe it this morning, he is also yours. And so would you trust in him? Let's pray, and then let's come to the table.